Welcome to the Supported Living Property Podcast with your host, me, Lisa Brown, the place to learn about supported living property investing. Before we get started, I want to make sure you know about the Supported Living Property Network. If you need a property for supported living, if you have property that you want to lease to a supported living provider, or if you simply want to learn more about supported living property, then the network is here to help you. You can find out more in the show notes or by going to my website, www.lisabrown.uk. In this episode, well-known researcher Imogen Blood discusses her recent research into the impact of social housing. They looked at a wide range of services and tenant groups and studied the interaction between health and supported housing services. They examined the impact of supported housing on health and found how complex tenants' support needs actually are, with many tenants experiencing one or more physical and mental health need. Imogen shares some important guidance from the research for supported housing providers to take into practice. Hi Imogen, it's great to have you here today. How are you? I'm good. It's very warm here in Manchester today. Just uh, just for any viewers watching this in colder months, it's uh, it's 30 degrees. So uh, excuse me if I'm a little uh, a little flustered, but uh, yeah, lovely to be here, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Oh no, it's fab to have you here. Now, for people who don't know you, do you want to tell people a little bit about you and your background and what you do? Sure. Um, I'm an independent uh, researcher. Um, I started out um, many years ago um, working in hostels um, for people um, experiencing homelessness. From there, I went on to qualify as a social worker, really, just because I felt as though I wanted to understand more about the kind of underlying conditions and challenges that the people I was supporting um, faced. And that took me into prison drug and alcohol work for a number of years and then I jumped around different types um, of social work for a while not quite finding the right space I think because I wanted to have more meaningful conversations with people um, than kind of filling in assessment forms I think so I ended up um, moving into research where I've kind of been with a bit of training and some consultancy ever since Um, and because um, I suppose I've, because of my kind of combined interest in housing and social work, um, supported housing has always ended up being quite a natural space for me. So over the years, I've done lots of pieces of research around supported housing, worked across a whole wide range of different client groups, looking at older people, um, people coming through the criminal justice system, um, younger people with a range of disabilities. So right across the spectrum. Um, And about 13, 14 years ago, I set up my own uh, research consultancy, Image of Blood and Associates. And we basically, our business model is that we tender for pieces of work from big charities, sometimes central government, um, housing associations, local authorities, smaller charities, really right across the not-for-profit sector. Um, And we carry out research, engagement work, really anything that involves looking at the evidence and trying to decide how we can make services and policies better as a result of that. Um, And I work alongside a number of associates to do that. And everybody brings a kind of mix of professional research and lived experience. We're trying to be very real world about it, Um, really kind of look at what does this mean in a practical sense. That's our kind of vision. 
Fantastic. And certainly when you look on your website, you see sort of the breadth of all the different studies that you've been involved in and the research that you've done. It's really impressive, isn't it? You know, it really is. But obviously we're here to talk about one specific study here. Um, Do you want to tell people a little bit about that and explain? Yeah, we were very excited um, to be invited to tender about, well, it was, yeah, it was about probably about this time last year, actually, by um, the National Housing Federation, um, who, is, as I'm sure many of your um, your listeners will, will know, is the kind of membership body uh, for registered providers of housing um, in England. And they had effectively done a whip round amongst, I think, 14 in the end, different housing associations who decided that they would each chip in a little bit of funding um, to um, fund um, a study looking at supported housing. Um, which was an amazing, I mean, just in itself is an amazing kind of, you know, opportunity. It's a bloody nightmare from an invoicing point of view, I can tell you. But, um, but you know, incredible in terms of sort of buy-in and commitment and a real mm. kind of move from the sector to want to kind of improve the evidence base around supported housing. Um, obviously, being the National Housing Federation, the kind of primary driver for them in many ways was around lobbying government. So they were really keen for us to look at the value for money from supported housing. Um, and the piece of work really grew out of um, two subgroups which kind of sit within the, the National Housing Federation. So one was one's a group that looks at supported housing and health, and the other was a group that looks at homelessness and supported housing. So we were kind of rather ambitiously trying to do quite a lot of things for quite a lot of different people with all slightly different agendas. <laughs> you know. Um, but really wanted to look at, you know, the role which supported housing in its absolute full kind of breadth of the word, but not including older people's services. But that might but but we were including everything from women's refuges to kind of homelessness hostels to a range of kind of move on supported dispersed provision that providers might be running right through to including um, supported housing for people with kind of longer term, perhaps more complex disabilities. So we were looking at the role which all of those services play in reducing homelessness and also in um, generating health and well-being outcomes and collectively what that means for the public purse. And how did you actually go about, because obviously that sounds really ambitious, that could be the sort of thing that could take, you know, 10 years and you wouldn't have it finished, would you? So how did you go about that? Oh, yes, it was it was a lot of hard work. I mean, the other part of actually, there was another strand even. They also wanted to understand how it all kind of, how supported housing fitted, was fitting or should fit into the kind of um, health and social care integration agenda as well. So it was multi, multi-layered. Um well, we had a couple of different strands to it. Um, and the one, the kind of, I suppose, the, well, they, they were both exciting, but in many ways, the perhaps the kind of, the, the bit that took the most work perhaps was um, a multi, you know, a, a really kind of quite large scale survey that we did. We worked with a number of RPs. I think there were probably eight or nine in the end, don't quote me on that, with whom we, we sort of partnered to run this survey. Um, and basically their kind of, their key workers, so the people that are kind of most closely in contact with individuals living in supported housing, were asked to fill in a survey for each of the people that they support. Um, and really, we were asking, we were really keen to get that key worker perspective, because you can obviously, you get something quite different. I'm sure you'd get something different if you asked the person. And in many ways, that would, of course, be the ideal. But we just decided it wasn't going to be possible within the resource and at this scale. 
Um, and you get something different if you look at the data. But we really wanted to get those kind of those people that are most on the ground, what they kind of thought and saw, what you know, why they felt the person had needed to move into supported housing, what they'd been able to work with them around, what some of their kind of demographics and issues and, you know, sort of profile was, whether they felt they were ready to move on, if that was a, a short term service, what was holding them back from that. And really crucially, how some of those kind of partnerships were working around the individual. Um, so we rolled out this massive survey. Um, we had, there was a lot of data cleansing that we had to do, um, but we did end up with over 2000 responses. I think there were 2,200 responses in the end after we'd kind of weeded out the ones that didn't quite make sense, uh, which is a really chunky data set. Mm. I mean, really, really um, exciting. And we were able to do all kinds of, um, you know, my colleague, um, Nicholas Police, professor at York University was able to sort of play around with it using multivariate analysis and kind of looking at different kind of, you know, how different factors correlate with each other. We did a whole load of of things to really look at that data set. And I'll come on to that in a moment. But the other strand um, was that I interviewed about 30 different people, um, mostly from the supported housing sector, but I included some of the kind of policy, national policy leads around all of this area. And I was really keen to try and speak to people who are working at the interface with the NHS, because I felt that was an area that perhaps hadn't been as explored as much as the interface with local authorities. So we had some focus groups, did a whole load of interviews to really try and understand the context and opportunities for partnership in the current uh, climate. And then there was just a huge job of piecing it all together and trying to you know, pull it into something that I hope is readable and then try and, you know, summarise it again and again and again until you end up with something that, you know, people can kind of look at quite quickly. But that was that was the broad process for it. So masses and masses of information to put, oh. to draw on from lots of different tenant groups as well, by the sounds of that. So yeah. Lots, lots and yeah. lots of different variety there. What would you say were the key findings that you found? Obviously, yeah. that's really hard because it's a massive piece. It of is. Work, it is something hard to see the wood for the trees. And I would just add one quick um, mm. health warning, I suppose, is that we we did we we felt we had enough response from the kind of longer term learning disability and sort of com more complex mental health um, sectors um, to draw some conclusions. But we were overrepresented in terms of some of what might be called as transitional supported housing so we we had more kind of responses from the homelessness from the kind of short-term side um but we felt so you know we did a lot of kind of waiting to sort of balance that out but just just to add that as a health mm -hmm. warning. yeah so I think I mean yes it was it was broad and it was um you know there was a lot of stuff going on there I mean I suppose just one of the things that really came out which I think we all kind of knew but to have the evidence to back it up as was was really important I think just the kind of the complexity of need, the fact that many people living in supported housing, um, you know, particularly, you know, we were particularly struck by the people in short term supported housing who have, you know, often multiple uh, health conditions. Um, so, you know, half of half of all the people in the sample had you know, more than one um, of a kind of a health condition, a disability that that includes kind of mental ill health, learning disability. So, you know, real kind of high levels of, of multiple health need. Um, and for instance, we were struck by the, you know, the numbers of people in kind of homelessness provision who have a physical disability or really kind of complex physical need uh, and, and the numbers of people in those settings who 
need, ideally, or in some cases are getting a, a social care package. So that kind of, the, you know, the levels of need, and I suppose the fact that, you know, you kind of naively start at the beginning of that process thinking, oh, all the people who've experienced domestic abuse will be sitting neatly over here in the in the domestic abuse services. And probably most of the people with learning disabilities will be over here in all the specialist learning disability provision. But it really, really was much more blurry than that. Um, you know, we, we were struck by the fact that right across all of the service provision, there were, there were high levels of people who'd experienced domestic abuse. Mental health was, you know, an issue for large proportions of people right across all of that, that whole kind of, um, you know, breadth of provision. So people don't kind of fit into our neat little categories um, and they often aren't, you know, aren't in, in, in services that have been specially designed for, mm. for, for their presenting need. And that that raises kind of interesting challenges, I think, um, for, for, for both for policymakers and people delivering services and no doubt for those individuals. And I think having that as evidence is really useful, probably for those service providers to be able to say, look, actually, we are seeing this high level of complexity. We do need this additional support. You know, that's probably very powerful to have that, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I think mm. that I think that is really, really important. And I suppose it kind of, you know, around the mental health point, it really does highlight what a massively important job supported housing as a sector is doing to um, support and and, and manage um, people's mental health needs, often really in the absence of, you know, effective co-working with the mental health sector, which is, you know, the, 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 the NHS mental health sector and, and, and social services, which, as we know, are, are hugely stretched. Mm. Um, so we, you know, we identified, you know, a lot of people who, who, who really need, um, you know, external statutory mental health um, support, but who aren't, aren't receiving it. And that obviously has a massive impact on services, on the levels of risk that they're managing. Um, I guess this fact that many of us who've worked in the sector have known anecdotally for years that, you know, often it ends up being supported housing workers who aren't you know, aren't, as we know, aren't well paid as a sector, have varying degrees of, you know, training and support in this area who end up kind of picking up the pieces, so to speak, um, of mental health crises, often without, you know, the sort of support you would hope for from from wider services around them. So I think that, you know, we've got some evidence to kind of back that up now, which is is really important. Mm. That's it is absolutely showing that you know the crossovers as well isn't there between the different mm. the different needs um what other were the key what were the other key findings that you found yeah I mean I think we were we obviously went in to kind of we were particularly interested in 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 the value of supported housing to the mm. NHS um because clearly that's you know that's where in some ways the, the, the big value argument needs to be made um, and we were we spent a lot of time working out how we could kind of establish that we knew we couldn't really ask about people's improvements or changes in people's health because clearly there's going to be a million different health conditions going on really difficult to ask support workers to comment on that and and how on earth we would compare it all so we don't know whether people's health itself was getting better or worse but we spent quite a lot of time designing questions that we hoped would tease out some of the very practical ways in which supported housing can improve health and well-being and we identified you know that just you know we've got some data now to show the you know the huge numbers of people who are being supported to register with a local gp by their um supported housing providers mm. so we estimated that you know kind of 
uh, any, I mean, we, we did some sort of national estimates grossing up our findings. And um, we estimated that sort of out of 140,000 people in, um, you know, working age supported housing delivered by registered providers at any given time, you know, half of them um, have been given really significant help to register with a local GP. I mean, and obviously we know being registered with a local GP doesn't suddenly open up the whole NHS to you at the drop of a hat, but it but it is a it's a necessary, if not a sufficient first step um, to people, you know, not just turning up at A&E with things that mm. could and should have been dealt with sooner. It's um, a really important gateway, isn't it, to be able to it get is. to it? Yeah, absolutely. It is. So yeah. It's like, you know, actually, you know, that that, you know, we know that's a, a real driver for the NHS to, to, to make sure that everybody you know can access timely uh, primary health care. So that felt like an important kind of point to have some figures around that. Um, and again, you know, huge numbers of people being supported to attend health appointments more consistently. You know, we know that supported housing staff are, are there, you know, ringing up, trying to coordinate health appointments, saying, you know, this person's repeat prescription hasn't come through and they can't make this appointment because it clashes with another appointment and reminding people to go along. In some cases, they'll be actually attending those appointments with the person. And, and you know, the value of that to, to the NHS came out really clearly, you know, 62,000 of those 140,000 are being um, helped to attend those appointments more consistently and of course we know that you know people not turning up to health appointments is a massive loss to the NHS and and that people are getting you know kind of thrown out of systems precisely because they don't attend consistently so that you know we know those are really big issues and we could see the value which um, supported housing was having there and and just really helping people to you know, huge numbers of people have been helped to access diagnosis and treatment, whether it's for physical health conditions or, or mental health conditions, you know, um, large numbers of people. So I guess it's interesting from an NHS point of view, in a way, more people coming to light who, who you know, more, more, more immediate demand for, for registration with a GP, more immediate demand for appointments, for diagnosis, for treatment. But actually, you know, if we can't get in there and provide preventative health care really effectively for this huge group of people with, you know, massively complex health needs, then, you know, what hope have we got of, you know, delivering effective health outcomes and and, and of, you know, moving away from people making kind of inappropriate use of A&E because they've got no other alternative and waiting for the leg ulcer to burst rather than, you know, spotting it three weeks earlier and rubbing a bit of cream on it. You know, these, these are really important um, ways in which supported housing is, is massively adding value, I think. So that came across really clearly from a health point of view. I think in terms of the homelessness side of things, um, I mean, it's an interesting point that, you know, how is supporting housing helping reduce homelessness? I mean, it's obviously on the one level, it's putting a roof over people's heads who might otherwise be out on the streets or, you know, staying in a whole range of risky, inappropriate situations or who might be taking up patient beds that the inpatient beds that aren't needed or they might be living in really expensive local authority funded temporary accommodation so there's there's obviously lots of ways in which um supported housing is is preventing homelessness but we we were also really keen to look at you know the role which supported housing is playing or trying to play in supporting people to move on um and getting them equipped to do that um and we were we were we were surprised actually at the the numbers of people who were moving on um, to, to, to tenancies. We've got absolutely no, no way of knowing whether those tenancies were appropriate, whether they kind of 
you know, sustained in any way. Um, but we, you know, we did, we, you know, out of, we, we basically managed to get some follow-up data, three-month follow-up data from a number of our providers to find out who, who had actually moved on out of the sample. And we then did a whole load of kind of modelling to look at what that might mean at a national level. And we sort of found from that that we, 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 we estimated that there are about 80,000 units of kind of transitional supported housing in England. So that includes obviously homelessness type provision, but also step down mental health provision, you know, anything that's not intended to be a home for life, really, for people. And we estimated that probably about 50,000 out of people out of those 80,000 units are every year being resettled into tenancies, which was quite a high number we were it pretty is. that's that's higher than I thought that, it would actually. be yeah, yeah we were really impressed by that um and you know we tried you know we went back we tried to double check it we tried to be more conservative and you know probably about half of those people have had a significant previous history of living of homelessness or being in and out of institutions um we, as I mentioned before we've got no way of following up on that we don't know how successful that's been and I think that's a real gap for the sector uh, but we did also find so we can see that you know against all the odds supported housing is doing a great job of move on um, but we also found lots of people and you won't be surprised to hear it who are obviously staying on longer than they really need to from a support perspective just because the affordable housing isn't there mm-hmm. um, you know so I think just over half, I think it was 56% of people in short term um, supported housing were felt to be ready to move on when we did our snapshot. Uh, but for over half of those people, it was the lack of, of move on options, um, affordable accommodation that was really holding them back. And we found this kind of group of people, around about 15% of the people in short term supported housing who'd been there for three or more years. Oh, and, and to me, that kind of points both to the lack of affordable move on housing, but also to the fact that I think policymakers and design, you know, sort of people commissioning supported housing haven't yet really got their head around the fact that there is this group of people who have you know, who probably show up in the kind of homelessness cohort, but then their health and you know, care needs are such that it's not just a question of putting a roof over their head. You know, they're going to need really long term, maybe lifelong kind of health and social care input. Mm. Um, and at the moment, some of those people are in, you know, short term supported housing where it's really difficult to see what the kind of move on option might be. You know, they probably don't fit in, in either in terms of age or lifestyle into kind of um you know care homes for older people or sheltered housing they you know they don't quite fit in other services and you know I think there's a real need to think about that group and and what sorts of you know housing models are needed for them moving forwards it sounds like a really important space for someone to be looking at doesn't it from all the conversation I can see loads of other research you should be coming out of all of this I'm sure you have (laughs) yeah 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 definitely and that group is a theme that keeps coming up in a lot of our other work you know Mm. in authorities and we've done lots of work in you know kind of looking at um the housing first model and you know what you know once you've got the roof over somebody's head what does it then look like and actually people's needs can can increase over time you know it might it might sustain a tenancy for eight years but at the end of it they probably have you know really you know quite really high levels of 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 physical health needs Mm. yeah and you were also looking at how the different services related to each other and how they interacted, weren't you, as well? What did you yeah, find around yeah. that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, it wasn't all bad news by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't want to sort of sit here and say, oh, all these other services are massively letting supported housing down. There was, you know, there was lots of evidence of of, of partnerships that were working, but there were also, you know, lots of lots of people who who need, um, you know, need kind of better input from external services and aren't getting it you know Mm. mental health services you know being the one that kind of stood out but it was also really striking that people who needed support from local authority housing options teams to help them with their staff you know their move on out of homelessness weren't necessarily getting you know the support they needed there so there were there were lots of partnerships that you know and I think it's just you know we tried to kind of dig into it we cut it we cut the kind of partnerships data by type of scheme by you know to some extent by different areas of the country by different types of client group and the impression is that you know it is a bit of a lottery really you know there isn't you can't kind of go it's certainly true that where you've got specialist schemes so where you've got a specialist mental health scheme that's been properly set up and commissioned and embedded as part of the the pathway the local mental health pathway then yes you know you, you definitely see better Uh, partnership working with secondary mental health services there as you would expect to that came across very clearly but for everything else it just seems to be a bit of a lottery really really a lottery you know you find examples of schemes where it is working well for whether it's about the individuals that have just made it work and you find other places where it just isn't so it feels as though it's fragmented and, and inconsistent across the country with different variations in regions and different places yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely and uh, I mean it one of the one of the kind of key questions we were asked to look at is whether the shift towards integrated care systems and partnerships holds hope for improving that and we certainly found you know, we, I was really keen to find some practical examples where that where that's looking good. And there certainly are practical examples, I think, at a kind of strategic level where, you know, the better partnerships seem to be emerging. Um, but again, it's 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 patchy. You know, the, the whole development of integrated care systems is patchy up and down the country. They're all at really different stages of development. Some are still very much kind of working out who's who. Um, some have got a much more kind of clinical membership. Some have already got really well-established links into into to housing associations, um, and have been having these conversations for many years. So again, it's it's very variable, and it feels as though you know we there's lots of learning there at a local level, but we do also need some kind of national push for for, for greater consistency um, around both you know understanding what supported housing we need understanding what that should look like putting around that some basic um basic kind of frameworks for what the sorts of partnerships and the service expectations um from some of the different agencies that are needed to support individuals what that really needs to look like having some consistent language around it Mm. Um, i mean the sector obviously has a huge amount to contribute and is playing a really important role but even those of us that have been working in it for years don't know what to call different models and, you know, what, what <laughs> language should be. And, you know, at a political level, it's been a nightmare for years. So it's it's a really, it's really kind of tricky area. Yeah, and I, that sounds like one of the, you know, key recommendations, I guess, isn't it, is going forward is, is that consistency and that guidance. And, yeah, it's definitely, the terminology is something that I know, 
everyone in this space struggles with that I speak to. What do I call this? <laughs> what do I, yeah. yeah, and just, you know, I think, it, you know, it came across the conversations we had with people working in the NHS, just how, you know, how the basics aren't always understood by people in the NHS. You know, we, we, we can spend a lot of time trying to do fancy calculations to work out what, you know, how many millions of pounds we may or may not be actually saving the NHS. But sometimes you just need to sit down and say, that this is what our staff are doing, you know, we're, 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 these are, this is how we work with people. This is what this looks like on a day-to-day level, because I think often those really kind of quite basic conversations aren't happening. Um, you know, people in the NHS at that frontline level don't necessarily understand what the supported housing, you know, that there is a profession there, that there is a kind of model and a way of working and what what the opportunities are there for working together. And I think when they do start to understand that, they're kind of the first people to ring up and say, oh, can you tell me how Bob's getting on this week? You know, why didn't he come to my his last appointment? You know, so I think just on that very personal level, there's some basic conversations to have there about what are we doing? Why is it important? What are the relationships we have with the people we support? And how can we better work together but it sounds like a really useful point for people who are listening who deliver services to be aware of you know to think about actually who are the the health professionals they communicate with and actually do they understand what they do on a day-to-day basis yeah yeah yeah. just getting those basic messages across and then I think at a sort of more strategic level for some of your listeners perhaps it kind of came across that you know the NHS doesn't always understand and I'm speaking about the NHS as though a it's one unified thing and b I fully understand it have from having had a few phone interviews so you know anyone who's listening to the NHS saying don't tell us all the same but but you know I think one of the messages that came out from some of the focus groups we had was that you know, the NHS understandably doesn't always understand how housing capital outside of the NHS works. Mm. Um, you know, there's been a long standing kind of use of quite short term um, funding in certainly in sort of mental health services. It's kind of quick. Let's kind of, you know, let's do a, a bit of spot spot commissioning, you know, come up with a placement for this individual, which might be out of area, might be really expensive. And actually to kind of pause and to really think about the lead in time to properly design, get the capital in place, the kind of revenue requirements that investors and providers need to kind of make it all stack up, you know, to, to, to make those conversations happen is a is a much more kind of longer term strategic piece of work that needs to happen and sort of knee jerk spot purchasing in, in a kind of often quite risk averse way is often the culture in, in 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 those services so we you know we've got to kind of understand what what you know what does the nhs need to understand about how to unlock housing capital and what kinds of reassurances investors and providers need um in terms of revenue and how we can really sort of build in the kind of the right sort of clinical governance and the right kind of standards around how we're going to work together. How do we actually make sure supported housing is part of the proper pathway? We've really thought through how we're going to jointly manage risks. And I think if we can get that right, then the the potential to both save money for the NHS, but more importantly, to create really high quality of life for individuals. And we've seen lots of examples of that up and down the country where people have been brought back from really expensive out of area placements where they were 
you know, unnecessarily restricted, brought back to their home and, and actually, you know, enabled to kind of have a proper tenancy and have a normal life in the community. I mean, there's real, real scope to make that happen, but I can see there are also some real barriers to making it happen as well. There definitely are, you know, from the from where I sit with the sort of property head on and the communicate conversations we have between property investors and the providers and commissioning teams and everything. It is very frustrating. And the time sc- scales are very frustrating as well, because, you know, you'll get a phone call from someone saying, oh, we need a property next week. There's no way I can possibly, even if I had a million pounds to purchase your property, wouldn't be here for you next week, you know, because we've got a the purchasing conveyancing process is months currently, you know, even if you do it really quickly, you're, you're looking at six weeks, you know. Absolutely. So those conversations need to be happening so much earlier in the process, don't they? And they need to be. It's great that we've become more focused around the needs of individuals, of course. But actually, you know, in in local areas, we need to have that sense of roughly how many people are going to be coming through you know, health pathways, roughly how many people are going to be, you know, in housing need in Mm. different ways and and having those conversations at a sort of scheme or a block level much, much sooner, Mm. um, you know, much earlier on. Otherwise, it does become completely knee jerk and and nobody's getting good value for money. No, no, absolutely. Thank you, Imogen. That was really, really helpful. We'll put the links to the research um, in the show notes so people can find them and put your contact details in there as well so people can contact your organisation and and find out more about what you do. So thank you, Imogen. That was really great. No, really nice to speak to you, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you found this useful, then please do click the subscribe button and leave a review. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please consider telling someone else about it? Sharing the podcast really helps increase the reach of the show and I would be super grateful. Thank you.